So you, you may have heard, we're starting a series now that'll take us through the summer um, called First Corinthians, the stuff I was too scared to preach before. So uh, when you first called me to be, be uh, one of your pastors back in 2007, we started with a series on First Corinthians. And then as soon as I started reading First Corinthians, I started finding like, oh, that passage is kind of dull. I don't know what I would do with that. And uh, on this passage, is really hard to understand. And then this other passage is super controversial. That's just going to make everybody mad. Yeah, my First Corinthians notes did look like that, all redacted like that. And um, now I know that it's wrong for a pastor to skip around passages because one's boring and one's hard and a bunch of them are controversial. But uh, I'd only been out of school for like five minutes, right? This is my very first ministry job. I didn't know how we were going to get along, you know, what you're going to take off of me. So, so we skipped around. But now it's 12 years later, and, you know, I feel like we're getting along pretty good. And so we're going to go back and revisit these First Corinthians passages that were skipped before and see if we can't discover why did the Holy Spirit inspire these words and why did the church preserve them and how did they come to be passed on to us. So let's dig in to these previously redacted passages and see what we might be able to find there. So this is the intro to the letter. Now, lots of preachers skip the intros to letters. They're basically the equivalent of, dear mom and dad, Cam's great, sure do miss you all. And so, you know, and maybe if I were smart, I'd still be skipping it, but, um, but uh, I'm not smart. So we're going we're gonna to do this. Let's start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and from our brother Sosthenes. All right, let's start with some easy questions like the word apostle. You know, Paul says he's an apostle. We hear that a lot. What's that mean? So Jesus died on the cross around 30, 33 A.D., but then his, his uh, followers said, and we believe, that he rose from the dead on the third day. And he sent them out into the world to proclaim that God's forgiveness is now offered to all people. And that Christ's death and resurrection on the cross is the sign of God's forgiveness and what has made it possible. So they're sent out to give that good news. And the Greek word for someone who's sent out is apostolos. And so that's where we get our word apostle. It means the people who were sent out. So you hear apostle Paul, apostle this and that, and the disciples, and then all of a sudden they're the apostles. Maybe you never knew before. What's that word? It's those who were sent out to share this good news with the world. You're an apostle. And uh, if we had skipped the intro, you wouldn't know that. So it says this letter is written by Paul. Now, Paul gets bandied around a lot. Paul said this, and Paul wrote that, and St. Paul, and Apostle Paul. But maybe you've never figured out, like, well, who is Paul? What's the big deal? And now you're not going to ask. And so, but we're doing the intro. So Paul was a Jewish rabbi who persecuted Christians. He would go around Jerusalem and imprison and have people executed for spreading what he believed was a false religion. And after about one, two, three years, he started to get extradition papers where he could go do that in other cities. And so he was riding up to Damascus to capture Christians when Paul had a vision of Jesus Christ on the road. And so then Paul became an apostle and he started uh, going around the Roman world to spread Christianity. And so that's why Paul is so exciting to Christians because he started out as an enemy of the faith and then he came to faith and spread it all across the Roman Empire and wrote much of what we call the New Testament of our Bible. So we got that from the intro. 
Also in the intro, it says uh, it's from Paul and from our brother Sosthenes. Okay, who's Sosthenes besides having an impronounceable name? We don't know for sure, but I think I, have a, I think I have a really good guess. So five years before Paul writes this letter, he's preaching in a synagogue in the city of Corinth. And this is the letter to the Corinthians. And a riot breaks out. Well, the leader of the synagogue who had invited Paul to come teach about the Messiah, his name was Sosthenes. And you find this all in Acts chapter 18, verse 17. It says, the crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. So I didn't know if you know this, but these intros and exits to letters that are often skipped contain all these dropped names. But you can take these names and then go back and connect them to the book of Acts and find that there is a history and a flow and that these are real people. And you begin to learn that our our holy writings are not some guy looking in his hat translating letters or not somebody who went up on a mountain and came back down and said, oh, God gave me this whole religion while I was up there. It's rooted in history and it's rooted with real people who lived in these cities and these places and you can track them across different books, often in these intros and exits to letters that most of the time we don't preach. Also, it's going to touch on this point. I don't know if you know this, but there are a lot of Bible scholars who teach that m- most of the letters in the Bible that, claim, that have the name Paul in them weren't written by Paul. There are Bible teachers that teach that most of the letters in the Bible that claim to be written by Paul were actually written by someone pretending to be Paul. And the main evidence they have for that is that the language, like the Greek grammar and vocabulary used across the different letters is different. And in some letters, the, the Greek is stronger than others. And some, it's written more like somebody who didn't really have a great command of the language, and some are written excellently. And so they say, well, these were all different people, and they're just all pretending to be Paul. And then the, the church got confused by that or something. But isn't there an easier explanation written right into this intro of the letter? That this letter was written by Paul and Sosthenes? And you start looking at all of Paul's letters and they're all written by Paul and somebody. Paul and Luke, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Silvanus, Paul and Sosthenes. And in one of the letters at the end, Paul says, I, Paul, write this line in my own hand. See how big my letters are? implying that Paul was dictating all these letters to a friend and then he says, oh, give me that, I'll write him a thing myself, but that maybe his eyesight was so bad that his letters are gigantic. And so isn't an easier explanation that uh, for where this other grammar and the cleaned up Greek can come from would be the person that Paul dictates to. And uh, as he speaks in his okay Greek, they kind of fix it as they go. Isn't that easier than a bunch of people pretending to be Paul and somehow the church never figured that out? And plus, why would you pretend to be Paul anyway? Because he wasn't famous back then. But you wouldn't know that had we skipped the intro. So this intro is being pretty good to us, I think. And it's only verse one. So I guess we'll keep reading it. Let's try, uh, let's try verse two. I am writing to God's church in Corinth. Okay, I love this history geography stuff. I hope you do too. Um, So Corinth is an ancient Greek city. It was destroyed by the Romans 150 years before Jesus for rebelling. But then 44 years before Jesus, they rebuilt it and made it a Roman colony. So, you know, colonies are a great opportunity because there's not already a ruling class and landowners and everything there. So a colony is just like America used to be a colony is a great place to go and make a name for yourself. 
Make a fresh start. There's room at the top. So people start moving to Corinth in order to you know, get rich and, and get somewhere in their life. And so this is all Greece. It goes up off the screen here too. But so here's Athens. But if you lived in this part of Greece and you wanted to get something to Athens, you'd have to put it on a boat and sail all the way around this peninsula to get up here to Athens. And at certain times of the year, this part of the ocean is very stormy and had pirates. So Corinth is right here on this isthmus. So what they would do is they would pull their ships up to here, and then they had built a log rail system three, five miles across this. And about 200 guys would put ropes on your ship, drag it out of the ocean, and put it back in on the other side. And it would take them like a couple of days so you could hang out in Corinth and do a little shopping while they drag your boat across the log rails. And at one time they pulled a whole military fleet up here, dragged the whole force across and surprise attacked their enemies a month earlier than they were expected because they dragged a whole naval fleet across this isthmus. So this is what made Corinth uh, famous. And the uh, modern day city of Corinth on Google Earth is shown right here. And you can see they've taken the log rail system and now dug a canal to just sail ships through. And so Corinth is still what it was in ancient times, shortcut across Greece. Did you know that the, the Bible, these letters like Corinth means that Corinthians meant that it was written to a church in Corinth. Philippians meant that it was written to a church in Philippi. Thessalonians to a church in Thessalonica. And so if we'd skip the intro, you might not know, like these are letters to real places with real interesting history and real time and space. And, and rooted uh, in a reality that you could go visit yourself if you wanted to. Let's continue verse 2. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. Being called to be holy people, that sounds like a heavy uh, burden to bear. What's holy mean? We think holy means uh, moral perfection, but that's really not what holiness is. Holiness means to be set apart for a different purpose. To be about the things God is about. Now that often leads to better morals. But it comes from a a different place. He says that this church, and our church too, is called to be different in what we believe. Different in how we act. Different in what we value as important and unimportant. Different in what we're willing to get worked up for and what we let go by. Different even in what we're willing to die for. So I hope that's a better definition for you of what holiness means when when you find holiness in the Bible. And then finishing verse 2. He made you to he made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now here Paul is trying to connect Corinth to churches all over the world. And this is where Paul starts dropping hints about what the rest of the letter is going to be about. Because if you keep reading Corinthians, you'll learn that Corinthians believed Uh, that they were superior Christians to other people, that their church was extra, extra special. And some of them even believed that they had outgrown Paul, that they'd even gotten to be better Christians than him, and they didn't need him or his teaching anymore, which is why he reminds them earlier, Jesus made me an apostle, not you. In fact, the intros to these letters give you hints of things that, uh, issues that are are to come, like verse 3. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God for you and for all the gracious gifts he's given you now that you belong to Jesus Christ. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. 
So he's praising them for having eloquent words and knowledge in their church. Now we're going to learn later in the letter the Corinthians actually believed that God had given them better knowledge than anyone else and more eloquent speech and even the ability to speak in an unknown languages, uh, which they called speaking in tongues. Christians today still speak in tongues. Some of you have spoken in tongues and received that gift. But the Corinthian church believed that that gift was given to everybody who was a real Christian and that the Christians who had it were better than the ones who didn't. And yet Paul looks at that and he thanks God that they've received these gifts, even though they've gotten out of hand. Where another pastor might say, look, you guys are getting out of hand with this spiritual gift stuff. Knock it off. Paul thanks them, or thanks God, for the wisdom that they have and the speech that they have. And then later he's going to make corrections. This is a very interesting approach. Now, guys, I see churches get this wrong all the time. There are churches today that have said, spiritual gifts have got out of hand, so we're not going to talk about spiritual gifts anymore. Everybody starts acting crazy. So no more praying for healing, no more prophecy, none of that kind of stuff. We're not doing that anymore. So they throw it out so there won't be trouble. I've seen churches decide uh, that their music program and having excellence in the music program has gotten out of hand. You know, because people try out for the band and they can't really sing or play well enough. And so then they get really, really mad. And so I have seen churches decide, you know what? We're not having tryouts anymore. Everybody who wants to be in the worship team can be on the worship team. Even if they have to turn them off and play a recorded track over the top of them. I'm not, I don't want to air out anybody's dirty laundry, but there are churches here in town where the people you see playing... That's not who you're hearing. And sometimes the players themselves do not know that they are shut off and a professional has been called in to record that ahead of time and played over the top of them. So, which means that no actual spiritual gifts are at use. And these folks had actual spiritual gifts that God gave them that are now completely unexplored because someone decided the music thing has gotten out of hand. Um, I know churches that have decided evangelism's gone to a weird place, so we're not going to evangelize anymore. It's just too awkward. So we're just going to sit in here, and we'll be really nice people, and we'll hope maybe somebody accidentally stumbles in and wonders something about Jesus. But we're not sharing faith anymore. Uh, A lot of churches have decided that serving the poor has gotten out of hand. The serving the poor has become a distraction of the gospel, that people are far more concerned with giving someone a bowl of soup than making sure they understand that Christ Jesus loves them and has a different life for them. So, so their solution to that is like, well, we'll just quit serving the poor. We'll just preach all the time. That'll fix it. God will fix the poor people thing later. And lately, I know Christians who have decided church itself has gotten out of hand. So let's just stop having church. Christians, seminary students, graduate and say, I'm not even going to do a church. I'm just going to open a coffee shop. If anybody wants to come in and talk about Jesus, I'll do that. Otherwise, I'll just give them shots of espresso. I'll just blog. I'll just start a website or just blog. That's a great church because if they get on your nerves, you just bar them from the comment section. Because church has gotten out of hand. See, we'll just keep crossing off everything that bothers us till finally we get down to something so small that human sin can't mess it up. But there's nothing that human sin can't mess up. Even Jesus himself gets distorted by human sin and how he's presented to the world. So there's, you can't make your church small enough that human sin can't mess it up. So Paul, rather than cross things off the list, he gives thanks for what God has done. He says, let's start there. Changing hearts, changing minds. 
It's a different take. Verse 6. This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. So lots of talking about the return of Christ and the end here. And we're going to learn at the end of this letter that some Corinthians no longer believe in the resurrection. They no longer believe Christ is going to return, that the dead will be raised, an eternal kingdom. In fact, some Corinthians in this uh, church, in this ancient church, believed that God's kingdom had already come completely here on earth. They were living in all the heaven there was ever going to be. They've arrived. There's nothing more to look forward to or wait for. And that belief then caused them to start doing some pretty weird stuff. You know, for many decades, the American church has struggled with this, only we've had the opposite problem. We've had so much focus on the end times and the end of the world, and you read all the books, um, that we lost focus on the here and now. As I said, some churches stopped serving the poor. They said, let's just preach about the end times. When people get saved, then you know God will come back and fix everything. There won't be any poor people. So we don't have to do anything about it now other than preach about the end times. A lot of churches have abandoned talking about the environment at all, and our responsibility as Christians to take care of this gift God has given us. Instead, we've taken the tack of, you know, burn it all down, then Jesus will come back and grow it back all up again. Um, taking care of our own bodies has worked its way out of the church. We all just pray for a heaven where you can eat chocolate ice cream all the time and never sleep and it won't ever matter. Um, we've given up on our families, given up on dealing with our own sin. Everything became, for many decades in the church, Jesus will come back and fix it all. In the meantime, crunch all you want, we'll make more. That's the old Doritos ad. I'm probably getting too old. All right. So we've had, in the last 10 years though, a healthy swing back. It's beginning to swing back. You don't really relate to what I'm talking about right now if you've just been in Christianity the last 10 years because there is a focus on also working in the gospel here and now as we await Jesus' return. But it is a swing that's in motion. And I believe our duty right now in the church for this generation is to see if we can halt this swing about right where it is. We're in a pretty good place right now of partnering with Jesus in this gospel, but also waiting for Jesus to return. Now, our enemy, the devil, liked this extreme, and he would also like it to go back to the other extreme, where we'd be like the first Corinthians church, where we'd swing so far that we'd no longer believe that Jesus is ever coming back, that there will be any sort of end times, and that everything is just here and now, and that's all there is. So our responsibility is probably to hold it about right where it is. We're living at a good time for theology. We need to recapture this idea that theologians came up with a long time ago of the already but not yet. Remember we said this. The already but the not yet. It goes like this. Christ is already king, yes, but he has not yet freed all the world from every stronghold of evil. Already but not yet. We already have eternal life guaranteed to us by Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, yes. But we've not yet received our immortal and imperishable bodies. There's still more to come in that. Not yet. Already and not yet. Are we already taking the world in Jesus' name? Banishing poverty where we can. Uh, banishing perversion from our own lives where we can. Spreading peace. Spreading prosperity. Absolutely. 
already. But the final victory will always be just out of reach until Christ returns and crushes the last of his enemies. And the last of his enemies are death, hell, and the grave under his feet. We're not big enough to pull that off already and not yet. If we let this keep swinging, the swing's been good, I'm saying, but if we let it keep swinging all the way to where the Corinthians were, where there's no resurrection, no return of Christ, um, that's going to take us to two bad places. The first bad place it will take us, if we don't believe Christ is ever coming back, is that we believe that this world is all there is, and so it's our job to fix it. In fact, I uh, was in a prayer meeting once uh, in Kansas City, and a preacher prayed, God, don't help us. God, don't save us until we fix this world the way we're supposed to. And when we do a good job, then I was like, whoo. That's humanism. That's humanism. We're all there is. And what happens when you go there is then you become very militant. You become very militant because you're on a mission from God. And you're all there is. And so then anybody who's dragging their feet, not going along with the program, standing in the way, you begin to justify doing bad things to them because they're too dang slow. A little censorship, a little concentration camp. We'll just break a few eggs on the way to making our Jesus omelet. Um, and so that's where it goes. That's where it goes in humanism because, you know, it's our job to fix the world and you're stopping me. And then you go to the second bad place because that still doesn't fix the world. And then we have shame. And in our shame, we either give up the faith and become an atheistic culture, kind of all at once, or we start faking it. We start acting like everything's fixed and fine when it really still isn't. All because we let go of the already but not yet. Where there are victories now, but there is also the coming of Christ to defeat all the enemies that are just too big for us. And that's where this intro ends. God will do this, for he is faithful to do what he says, and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The intro to 1 Corinthians. That was pretty good to us, I thought. Now, that's kind of like a Bible study, what we were doing there. Going into the fall, if you're a guy, you don't have a small group yet, this is what we do at men's discipleship breakfast. We read Bible verses, verse by verse, pull out all these little hidden gems and treasures and maps and have a great time. So if you liked this, come to that. If you didn't, um, other small groups available. But this isn't really preaching. Like, is there anything from this intro that we could take out of here today and, and live it out that would help us grow closer to God? Let's try this one. So here we have this church, this ancient church, and they believe they're better than everyone else. They speak in tongues, but that's gotten out of hand. They don't think they need spiritual leaders like their own founder anymore. Uh, Some of them don't believe in the resurrection or the return of Christ anymore. So that's pretty off the rails. Yet their pastor, Paul, says this in verse 4, I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he's given you now that you belong to Jesus Christ. He thanks God for this church. This church that's got to be driving him crazy. And he thanks God for them. He thanks God because they do have the Holy Spirit. And they are trying to follow Jesus. Have they gotten wrong ideas about how to do that? Definitely. Have they gone too far in a bunch of areas? For sure. But Paul looks at them and remembers, this, these used to be pure pagans. 
living in a Roman colony. They all came there to get rich and get ahead. Some did, some didn't. The rich and the poor never used to associate. Slaves are free, men or women, Jews or Gentiles. But now he looks at them, he goes, now look in the church. Those people are all there together. The rich and the poor, the slaves and the free, the men and the women, the Jews and the Gentiles, all mixing and trying to follow Jesus. Look at that. And he gives thanks. Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter about fixing sin. He's writing this letter to fix problems. But he starts with thanksgiving. And I wonder if we couldn't learn something from just that. That he starts with thanksgiving. What can we learn about our church, Lakeland? So here in Lakeland Community, our mission is right here, to build a community of authentic followers of Jesus Christ. That's a great statement. That's worth, that's worth a lifetime. But that's also frustrating. Because sometimes, you know, we're frustrated with the building. You know, we're not building fast enough. We're building too fast. What are you trying to build? Is that... The same thing everybody else built. Sometimes it's the community because not everyone's getting it or experiencing it in the way they would want to. Sometimes we're frustrated with authentic followers. You know, we got people who, who say one thing and then, then do another. You know, like preachers that watch 170 hours of Stranger Things when there's only 17. So why are you starting it over again? Um, sometimes it's keeping the focus on Jesus Christ. And not being focused on everything else that there is to focus on in the world. It's frustrating. So what are we going to do when it's frustrating? The scriptures in this letter say, start with thanking God. Start with thanking God for what we do have. We'll have to address these issues along the way, just like this letter does. But we've got to start thanking God for the building that has happened and the ministries that have happened here that we're so grateful for and for the community that we do have and all the instances we see where someone has taken care of someone else. Someone has found a friend and grown in Christ. We've got to thank God for the authentic followers that are sitting around you right now. People who, big ways and small ways, do what Jesus calls them to do. And of course, we've got to thank God that we belong to Jesus Christ. Surely, we're not expressing that in all the ways we could or should, but we're trying. And we belong to Jesus Christ. And that's what it's all about. We have to start there, thanking God for that. For those places where Lakeland community falls short, and no one's saying those places don't exist, For those places we seek God and we model ourselves after Jesus. Because we have to admit, if Jesus doesn't build this church, then we're not going to have one. Because we're not that bright. We're, we already have a church, but it's not yet you know, reaching the community the way we would want it to. You have friends that haven't yet come to Christ yet, right? As long as that's true, we haven't, we're still in the not yet. We already have a church dedicated to Christ Jesus. And yet every heart's not as fully in love with him. Not even my own heart is as fully in love with him as I'd want it to be. So we're the already not yet. We're the already not yet right here. We already have so much and yet we still can see more possibility. So you want to see the already but not yet, just look in the mirror. You're the already and not yet. But we start with thanksgiving because that's such a stronger place to start. Where else are you going to start? Start with complaining? Start with a fighting amongst ourselves? We can start with grumbling? Start by leaving? 
What does any of that accomplish? In fact, why don't we take this beyond church? Let's take this into other things God has given us. How about your marriage or your family? I bet you have some already not yet going on there. You know, things in your family, not yet what you would hope. But why not start with thanksgiving? Why not start with thanking God for what you do have in your family? Now, if you're in a bad spot today and you're sitting with your arms full, it's like, I can't thank God for anything in my family. It's such a train wreck. There's nothing good. There's nothing good. Uh, Brother, sister, you better think a little harder. It can always be a lot worse. Don't ever pray the prayer, God, show me how it could be worse. (laughs) It can always be worse, I promise you. And so start with thanksgiving. Start with what God has done. Start with what God has redeemed. And then from there, just like Paul, build out hope for these things that do need to change. What about your work? I'm sure there's some already things there. And I'm sure there's some not yet stuff there. What can you give thanks for in your work that God has already done and already redeemed? How about having a job? There's someone sitting around you right now that would love to just have a job. You're griping about your job and the guy behind you is like, wham, you have a paycheck. What about your health? Some of you are in bad shape, but what can you thank God for that you still have? I still have such a more hopeful place to begin. What about your circle of friends? You know, you probably would hope for more. But what can you thank God for that you have? I mean, surely all these areas need some serious work, need some serious Holy Spirit rehab. But why not start where the scriptures begin to thank God for what he's already done? To have the hope that God has. This church, Corinthians, the Corinthian church, they're crazy. They're doing crazy stuff. Paul thanks God that they're trying to follow Jesus and then he's, he starts the letter and builds out from there. And then get ready because although God loves us, God loves us right where we are. He loves us too much to leave us right where we are. God loves you right where you are right now, but he is not gonna leave you right where you are right now. Every single one of us, you, me, everybody is gonna go on a journey with him starting with that place of hope, with what he already has done. God will do this, for he is faithful to do what he says. And he invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's from this letter, 1 Corinthians, that we get those words, that when Jesus was in the upper room, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. And if our servers want to come forward, we're going to take part in the Lord's table. Because he took a cup and he said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I eat and drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. There it is. The forgiveness is already given to you, but we're not yet in my Father's kingdom. So the already is where you tear off the bread and dip it in the cup and receive God's forgiveness and the not yet is for the kingdom that's coming, but guaranteed. There it is. You live out the already and not yet right here at this table. Amen.